Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Conversations with Leaders. I'm Sam North. Inspiration is one of the best ways to transform. Conversations with Leaders is a bi-weekly interview with key industry players, CEOs, financial authors, and professional money managers worldwide. Get valuable insights from the people who've seen it all. Are you ready? Here we go. This podcast is for information and education purposes only and should not be taken as investment advice, a personal recommendation or an offer of or solicitation to buy or sell any financial instruments. This material has been prepared without taking into account any particular recipient's investment objectives or financial situation and has not been prepared in accordance with the legal and regulatory requirements to promote independent research. Past performance is not an indication of future results. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Conversations with Leaders, where you can get valuable insights from successful investors and financial leaders worldwide. My name is Sam North, a market analyst at eToro, and I'm happy to be your host today. Being a successful trader and investor takes time to master. Knowledge, experience, psychology and consistency are just some of the key attributes to help on this journey. Our guest today has it all and I cannot wait to get their insight. We are joined by Brent Donnelly, currently president of Spectra Markets, who has traded since the mid-90s, wrote about macro for almost 20 years, and has recently written two books, The Art of Currency Trading and Alpha Trader. As well as a trader and portfolio manager, he has spent time as a market maker and senior manager at some of the top banks in foreign exchange. You name it, his words have been published by that organization, from Bloomberg to the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times. Brent, welcome to Conversation with Leaders. How are you? Hey, Sam. Thanks. Thanks. Wow, what an intro. I'm, uh, I want to meet this guy, whoever he is. Sounds interesting. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it sounds like a, an Oscar nomination there, doesn't it? Um, but yeah, what a career. Quite the so, intro. That's one of the best intros I've ever gotten. Yeah, fantastic. Fantastic. Well, I'm looking forward to it, and um, I'm sure our users will as well. So, We've planned to sort of go through different sections. Views on the market right now will be where we we, we first go to. And how are you seeing things at the moment? And, and how do you gather information to create a bias or a view? Sure. So let me just clarify a couple of things for, for the viewers. So I'm a trader. Um, generally, my time horizon is not an investing time horizon. It's more like one week to one month. But what I write about and what I look at is much bigger picture. So my philosophy generally is you look at, if you look at all the prices in the world and you say, okay, that's the current equilibrium, that's the sum of all the known information and all the flows that have gone on. And that's kind of where we are. I think you have to have a good understanding of that before you can forecast where you're going. So even though my time horizon is shorter, what I'm trying to do is like understand the macro picture and, and like in FX, which is my main thing, the microstructure and the flows and everything. And then that way, when you have a really good understanding of where you are, then when new information comes in, you can react you know, more quickly and hopefully more intelligently than others as price kind of tries to find its new, its new happy place. <laughs> so right now, it's really interesting because you know, that people like forecasters and researchers and stuff love to throw around like uh, uncertainty is very high. And like, yeah, dude, it's always a lot of uncertainty, you know, uncertainty is always high. 
Um, but I think what's different about this year is that the range of outcomes is much wider than normal. So like going into 2022, Fed was tightening into a bubble and it was a question of like, you know, what is that going to mean for asset prices? And it was kind of clear, like what the narrative was. We knew what the Fed was going to do. It would all kind of been, it, they were going to be on autopilot for a while. And then obviously they accelerated. But going into 2022, it was kind of like somewhat clear what was going on. Now, um, so I try to think of the market always in probabilistic terms. So I'll never say like the market's definitely going to do this or the market's definitely going to do that. Like, I don't think that's a healthy approach. I think what you want to do is have a set of probabilities in your mind and then assess how those probabilities match what's priced in and then, you know, look for, for divergences. So there's a, sometimes you'll hear the cliche of like the market's always right or the price is always right. I mean, I absolutely disagree with that. Um, you know, markets are efficient most of the time, but what you're looking for is times when you disagree with the market, yeah. right? And you say the market's wrong because of this, this, and this. So right now, um, in the spirit of being probabilistic, what I'm trying to do is really assess where the market is between the five main scenarios, which I have in my mind, which is, you know, all the way from like hard recession would be obviously the worst case, which was a much more expected part of the distribution like a month ago or two months ago. Yeah. Um, and then, so like I would call that like crash landing, then you have hard landing and then recession light is kind of like what we experienced a bit in 2022 where like real growth is negative, but nominal growth is okay. Kind of like, you know, muddling through and then you have soft landing. And then recently we've been, probabilities have been going more towards no landing, which mm -hmm. is something where like at the end of this year, unemployment's still at 3.4, Fed's still hiking. And so what I'm generally doing is trying to like toggle between what is the market thinking? What's the data saying? And then what are the good trades that you can put on in response? So like particularly right now, I'm very bullish dollar yen, mm. um, specifically because we're, we're moving to a more or like a less scary economic environment, like ISM obviously and payrolls being the two main things. But I think in general, you saw kind of like this absolute low in December in terms of sentiment spending and everything all around the world. And now we're seeing a rebound from that. And when sentiment was bad, really the hard data never got that bad. Other than mm -hmm. retail sales in some many countries, um, the hard data held in, especially obviously labor market held in very well in, in most countries, including Canada and the US. So now you have a scenario where people were buying like dollar yen downside for a hawkish BOJ and for US recession. And now it looks like Amami is probably in. Um, I trust the leaks in Japan. Obviously, that could be wrong, but we'll find out in a couple of days. Mm -hmm. But then really the key is that yields are shooting way higher, right? So dollar yen, 99 days out of 100 is a trade based on US yields, in my opinion, like okay. all the way back to like 2003, that was always the best framework for, for dollar yen. So of course, if, if a very hawkish governor comes in and they rip the bandaid off, um, then dollar yen will go down because mm -hmm. that's at the margin, you know, bullish for the end. But, but what it looks like to me is, is the more dovish candidate is, is looking more likely just as US yields have kind of like, I wouldn't say moonshot, but U.S. yields have gone a lot higher. So to me, dollar yen looks very low. Um, 
And then you can kind of like overlay on top of that, like what has positioning been? And generally in 2023, there's been a very strong bias to be short dollars. So I feel like there's enough pain, uh, specifically dollar yen, but all the, all across the board, that a dollar rally is is kind of like the path of least resistance now that people have established dollar shorts and the thesis isn't playing out too well for them because specifically because of what US two-year and 10-year yields are doing. So I, I think the dollar does well. And then really like the data is so important. I honestly feel like, yeah, we we obviously trade the Fed and it's important like on the day of, but like how many times has Powell come out dovish, everything rips, and then it just craps out two days later because the data is strong. So to me, like as a as anyone other than a day trader, I just think that the data is much, much more important than what the Fed's saying. And there's times when that's not true, right? Like if the Fed's if the Fed's in control of the narrative and they're going to do what they're going to do, then it does matter what the Fed's saying. But really what they're doing is they're more just reacting to the reality on the ground. So if if the reality on the ground says, like, whoops, inflation's bouncing and jobs market strong, the Fed's just going to be hawkish and they'll probably be hiking 50 in June or, or, or 25 in May, 25 in June. So I feel like fading the Fed and going with the data also is more of like a, a good short-term strategy now. And that's not always the case. No, for sure. I mean, it's really interesting just hearing you talk about the dollar yen and how you sort of, you know, come up with a potential strategy for that and how you could be reactionary to the other side of it, that if we do get a hawkish, you know, BOJ governor, just quickly on, on sort of currency trading, do you have a favorite mm-hmm. pair or is it a case of you'll trade what's the best opportunity at the moment for you? Is it, you know, you, you don't set out and say, okay, you're yeah. a dollar's my trade and I'll just go that way. No, generally I, I cycle between them. Um, I mean, I would say like in my career, I've done more dollar yen and dollar Canada um, simply because I like to trade a lot of correlation mm-hmm. and dollar yen is the most reliable correlation. It just is almost always correlated to yields, yeah. except, you know, there's exceptions. And then I'm Canadian. So dollar Canada is always kind of an, an interest just because like I've obviously followed it my whole life. Um, but I think, one thing that I don't like, like when I manage traders um, and they'll say like, oh, I'm losing money in Euro dollar every day. I'm taking it off the screen. I think that's a really bad idea. Um, like you should be switching currencies based on whatever the regime is. So, mm. you know, if if China's in play, then Aussie's going to be a more useful yeah. trade, whether you're going up or down um, that, as an example. Um, for or, or if EM's in play, then I'll trade a lot more dollar max. But if EM's kind of just doing, nobody cares about EM, like 2022 was one of the rare times when people were much more into G10 than EM. Yeah. So I wouldn't really be bothering with dollar max at that time. I think you want to be trading the things that are in play. I mean, it's just like stocks, right? Like if you're if you're day trading stocks or, or whatever, short-term trading stocks, you know, you're running screens for what's moving, what has high volume. You don't want to be trading things that that no one else is trading because it's just a lot harder to make money because they they generally won't move as much they won't be as liquid and you know there's just not as much point yeah for sure you don't want to limit yourself in in that regards uh let's talk then about right. 
the remainder of the year. And I realize you don't have a crystal ball unless there's one hiding behind you there. But uh, what do you think drivers for the remainder of the year? Is there, have you got like a, a checklist or a top three out there? Is there anything you're really thinking, okay, for the remainder of the 10 months or so that we have left, these are the important factors? Yeah, I mean, there's there's factors or or like checkpoints, like you say, um, on the global macro side. And then, of course, there's individual ones for different countries. Like, So I'll, I'll go back to the macro side, but a, an example of a more idiosyncratic one would be consumer debt is very high in Canada, but the jobs market has been strong, real estate's been strong. And so, you know, you can have as much debt as you want if you have a job. That's kind of like generally how it works is you can service the minimum payment and make your mortgage payment. But when people start losing their jobs, that's when the house of cards comes down. Mm -hmm. So for Canada specifically, my signpost is basically the labor market and like I'm biased to be short Canada, but I'm not really going to get that excited about it till the labor market turns because, you know, like I said, people, there's, there's a lot of positive things like immigration in Canada. Mm. And if the jobs market's strong, people will just keep making the minimum payments and you know, the, the wily coyote will never (laughs) fall from the sky. Um, in the bigger picture, I mean, the Fed's obviously important, but like I said, it's really more about inflation. So mm. um, what Powell's been pounding the table on is like disinflation has begun. And yeah, okay, that's true. But we, first of all, we knew that months ago because of base effects and stuff. But the question isn't like, have we peaked? Because I think th- it's almost unanimous from almost everyone that yes, inflation has peaked in the United States. The question is, where's the floor? So if the floor is one and a half, two, that's a completely different story than if the floor is at 3.6 and then we start bouncing off of 3.6. So I think uh, inflation is really the key to the Fed. And what I'm going to be looking for is where does it stabilize? And I mean, one thing that I think is bad that people do is they start looking at um, more recent data, like three month. The, like people are looking at three month annualized CPI and like there's enough volatility in it that that, that doesn't mean very much to me. Um, and if you look at January, that's going to, that number is going to be like 0.5 or something. So I think you have to really make some assessment over like the next three to six months is inflation bottoming or is it going to just keep on going to 2%? Because like the tips market and all that is pricing basically back to target of 2% by the end of this year or, or somewhere around there. So if it, that doesn't happen, that's like a huge story. Um, and then the other story that, that I think is, so us inflation is number one and number two is China reopening. I think because Mm. you have all the pieces in place there for like a reflationary good news, good for global growth, good for commodities, all that. But all we're doing now is assuming all that, right. That, that it's going to work out that way. And the parallel that everyone's making is like the U S when the U S reopened, but when their U S reopened, they were throwing $5 trillion around into people's pockets, like directly into people's bank accounts. Right. So that was like a turbo crazy reflation trade. The, the question, which like, I think it's reasonable to assume, you know, growth should pick up in China and all that, but maybe people come out shell shocked and look at their real estate values. And, you know, China's a lot more levered to real estate and real estate has collapsed. there, gone down a lot. So it's not the same as the US where everyone felt rich and everyone was getting money jammed in their bank accounts. So I think the the thing, the signpost there is 
like Q2 activity in China because the weather's still not great. New Year just happened. So in Q2, like does spending meaningfully pick up? Do, does do local governments and and does everyone start lending and spending? Because um, I think it's still up up for grabs whether that happens or not. Um, and if it doesn't, then that's that's going to be bad. Um, and then I guess the other question that's like just something that you can't really figure out other than just by by watching equities is like how long can equities survive higher rates? Because mm. there's two components to equity and like the relationship between equities and rates. One is that interest rate volatility on the top side is always bad for equities. Like it's just scary and you don't know where it's going to stop. But then now yields are going up, but volatility is pretty low. So you could get an environment where, where yields go up and, you know, equities finish the year at S and P finishes at 4,400 or something like that, where you just have like the immaculate rebound of consumption stays okay. And everything's happy. Um, I mean, I'm skeptical of that, but it's possible. And so the ability of equities and, um, and earnings to withstand higher rates, I guess, is really the question because the leads are, or sorry, the legs are, you know, long and variable as they say. So at what point, do you get companies that unable to, to refinance and all that? And right now, like, I mean, credit spreads are at the tights, right? So um, you can't just stay bearish stocks all the time. Just be, you know, there's always going to be a reason to be bearish stocks in, you know, every, every day of every year, there's always a reason. <laughs> um, so I think I, I want to be careful with that this year because I, I I'm biased to, to stocks going down, but I think there's plenty of scenarios where like we skate through and I think a good analog for that would be like 2006, where you had the yield curve inverted, housing looked sketchy. I mean, a lot of things looked really bad in 06, but we kind of skated through for another almost two years, right? And mm. so being short from 2006 to 2008, I mean, it cost people their jobs because, you know, you can't, you can't be bearish for that long and be wrong for that long unless it's your own money, you know, it's so... I think that's the third thing that I'm watching is just can equities remain resilient in the face of stronger growth. So like, for example, yesterday we had yields up, equities up, and that's an interesting day, but I mean, it's only one day. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be a very interesting time on Twitter. I think if the S&P 500 got anywhere near that all-time high again this year, Um, just on... Yeah. Actually, you make a good point there, like implicitly that you got to be careful what you read and what the biases are of what you read. Um, you know, like negativity bias is a thing in all media, but on Twitter, people <laughs> now understand like the algorithm rewards you if you're bearish and it yeah. rewards you if you talk extreme targets and all that kind of stuff. So because the incentives are misaligned on Twitter, there's not really like a huge incentive to just put a reasonable, you know, Hey, this is my base case, but you know, I'm a probabilistic guy and this is what I think might happen. Like that, that, that gets 38 views. And if you say like <laughs> stocks are going to crash, man, you get 10,000 views. So I think it's important to know like the bias and the incentives. Same thing when you're reading strategists, right? Like if you're reading someone that's been bearish for 10 years and like they are always bearish, then that's probably not a very useful analysis to read, even though it's fun to read. Um, you know, there's probably a lot of confirmation bias in that person and you're probably not going to get too much value out of it. So I try to be, I think that's something that I learned 
later in life um, was to be like a healthy skeptic when you're reading stuff and think about like, okay, who wrote this? What are their incentives? And like, sometimes people are just intentionally promoting, you know, things that they probably don't even really Mm. believe just because they know that's going to get clicks. Um, whether it's Bloomberg or Twitter or whatever, um, I think it's, it's important to kind of filter for, okay, is this person always negative? Is this person like being outrageous on purpose, that kind of thing. So, um, I try to do that and then narrow down to like, okay, these are strategists that I know are somewhat flexible. They have their worldview, but they're willing to incorporate new information. And then one by one, you weed out the ones that aren't like that. And then you have a good core of, of people to read. No, for sure. It completely makes sense. I think there was a tweet yesterday from, from Michael Burry, wasn't there, saying this time it's different. And the week before that, he said one word, which is sell. And you kind of get the impression where he's coming from each time. And that's one end of the spectrum. And then on the other, I think Jim Cramer was like, this is a reminder. It's a bull market. Um, so, yeah. It's- yeah, exactly. Right. And <laughs> they, we tend to make heroes out of these people that have correctly predicted like one event. Um, but they tend to very often, you know, there's a lot of luck in, in trading, um, especially on short time horizons. So you look at like John Paulson, who correctly called the crash of 08, you know, he, he probably made $2 billion from like, he took his 1 billion to 3 Mm -hmm. billion. And then based on that, you know, he got inflows up to 30 billion and then he lost 15 of those. Right. So like net, net, People think of him as a hero for catching the crash, but yeah. he's cost his investors a lot of money. Yeah, big time. Uh, let's take a little. Yeah, I don't uh, get on him. I mean, I don't know the guy. I'm just saying. No, yeah. I, I think we tend to elevate people that make hero calls. But like, if anyone out there plays poker, making a hero call doesn't make you smart sometimes. Sometimes it just means you got lucky, you were at the right place at the right time, right? Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, let, let's take a little step down to the sort of psychology risk management part of trading and investing a lot of people will will know that trading psychology is important but probably don't really know what it is so for you what would you say it is and and why is it important and and how do you think people can actually improve it uh to you know improve their results with it right yeah so it's such a broad field and i have always found it very interesting i remember reading uh, when I first started trading, reading a book by Mark Douglas, and there's kind of like a bit in there basically saying some people will lose money on purpose because they don't feel like they deserve the money. Um, like if your parents were tradespeople who, you know, did real work in a, in a real, in the real world, or, or they were teachers or whatever, some kind of thing that's like high value add to society, then maybe when you make money as a trader, you feel like you don't deserve it. So you like self-sabotage or whatever. And I remember reading that and thinking like, dude, what are you talking about? This is nonsense. Like this is like crazy psycho babble or whatever. And then as time goes on, I actually realized like, and I'm not saying that specific thing, but there's many psychological elements. Um, I believe much more in the psychological elements of, you know, trading because you're bored and then you just are sitting there, there's no good trades and you start trading because you're bored and then it can become borderline like a gambling type situation, especially if you have a small account and you're trying to make returns that are not realistic relative to the size of your account. So anyways, to answer your question, so I I was just trying to give that background because I kind of felt like it was like a little bit, seemed a bit self-helpy, some of this trading psychology when I started. 
And now I'm a big believer in it just because I've seen and I experienced and I mean, I've made most of almost all the mistakes. Like if you read my books, the reason I know what I'm talking about is because like I made all the mistakes and, and learn from them. Hopefully uh, I learned from some of them and I'm still learning from others. Um, but what it really comes down to, like if you want to distill everything into one simple package is that in order to succeed as a trader, and I would say as an investor too, although I think as an investor, it's less important like psychology is less important simply because it's easier to, all you have to do is basically not sell the lows in a panic and not buy the highs in a panic and the positive drift of equities and, and assets have yield. And so there's a positive drift to being an investor. You're going to make money just if you just sit there and do nothing. Um, whereas as a trader, I think the psychology aspects are much more important, but really it comes down to being rational. So, like no matter whatever you're, you say you have the best ideas and you understand everything about the markets and you know how everyone's positioned. If you then come to say like, okay, uh, okay, that makes me want to be long dollar yen. And then you can't pull the trigger or you see some headline and then you were long, but then you go short because you saw the headline or you're just, you have emotional attachments to like, I, I'm finding it really hard to be long dollar yen because I made so much money being short. I mean, there's like hundreds of different types of bias that, that can go into it. But essentially, I think it's it's harder to stick to your whatever your rules are than it is to actually know what the correct rules of trading are in terms of like how to get trade ideas, um, how to manage your risk. I think it, the, the biggest leak is that people just don't do what they know they should be doing. <laughs> so like um, people know like generally people don't want to be overweight and they don't want to be unhealthy, but yet, you know, a lot of people eat Pringles and eat chips and, and like sit around and watch Netflix and they know they shouldn't be doing that. Right. So like, it's sort of the same with trading. Like, you know, you shouldn't keep moving your stop. You know, you shouldn't get trade when you're angry. Um, you know, you shouldn't stop out because you're, you're nervous. You know, if you, you have to have a certain amount of courage to trade well and, and things like that. So, yeah, the basics are like a functioning risk management system and a good understanding of variance and, and like how to size positions and all that. Like you need all the, of those things. Those are, but those are like the necessary, but not sufficient conditions. And without good psychology and discipline, like discipline's a big part of it. Um, then it really doesn't matter. Any of the other stuff doesn't matter because you're just going to end up pushing buttons when you shouldn't be pushing buttons and doing, you know, getting out be, at the wrong times and all that. So, yeah, I, I think that psychology is almost like above everything. Like you can kind of lump in risk management with psychology, but um, I think those those two aspects are the most important in the long run, um, are the most important, in, you know, inputs into whether someone's going to be successful is like, are you conscientious and rational and following whatever system and, and especially on the risk management side? And I think one issue is that the fun part of trading is like solving the puzzle and coming up with ideas and, and all that. And the boring part is like optimal risk sizing and creating spreadsheets and then sticking to them and not getting sucked into like trading five times your correct size because you're so excited about the headline or whatever. Um, so most books tend to be about um, trade ideas and, and uh, how to trade kind of thing. Whereas like there's not that many books about risk management and and there's quite a few psychology books. Um, but the problem with trading psychology in general, and this is kind of true with any type of 
train of any type of bias is that like, okay, first you need to learn about it, which isn't that hard. But then even people who know about all the biases, like if you read Kahneman and Tversky, they go through all the behavioral biases that impact investing and all that. But the thing is, even if you know about it, you still have the bias. So it's very difficult to, to override. And then it comes down more to being like very self-aware. So I think one big thing that, or big jump that I made in my trading was, and this sounds a bit self-helpy again, but when I could kind of go outside of myself and see myself making mistakes. So, you know, selling, like I'd be doing something. Sometimes I've even said to like a guy sitting next to me, like I'm bullish, but I'm short right now. And I know this is stupid. You know, like I will say those words out loud and that's, but that's good self-awareness when you can do that. Right. Instead of when I was 25, I'd be like, really my thesis was bullish, but I got short somehow through some headline or something. And I'd sit there and figure out a way to justify the short position when I was 25. And, and I would convince myself that I was bearish, even though I had just been bullish like two seconds earlier. So I think getting to the level of self-awareness where you can see yourself making mistakes is almost like, for me, that's like the best I can hope for is not like, I'm never going to like stop making all the mistakes, but a lot of times now I see myself making them and then I can course correct because a lot of it is a battle between, especially in short-term trading where you need to react quickly is the battle between like system one, fast thinking, like heuristics and like quick reaction and then system two, which is more thoughtful and logical and all that. And so if you're always using system one and just reacting to everything, you know, you end up gambling and, and playing like a video game trading for fun. Um, so, but if you don't use any system one, you're just sitting there all day waiting for the perfect trade and you never actually do anything. So what I tend to do is more like let my lizard brain stuff go. And I like, if, if I kind of have a feeling something's breaking out and there's news and I think it's big news, then I'll do the trade, but then do a logic check. Once I'm in the trade with where I kind of chill out and write some pros and cons and say, okay, like, does this actually make sense? So those are the two steps, but then you still have to be able to like, you bought them at 40. Now it's 37, 38. And you're like, ah, oh, this is a stupid trade. People tend to anchor on wherever they got in. So then instead of saying this is a stupid trade, I'm going to sell at 37. They say, oh, when it gets back to 40, I'll sell. And then when it gets to 40, they're like, oh, maybe I can make one pip profit. I'll sell it at 41. Um, so that's the kind of like irrational stuff that goes on where people value positions that they have on, even if the, it makes no sense to to stay with the position as an example. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting, actually, just I, when I started trading, which would have been about 10 years ago, I, I started trading futures, which is kind of a, a baptism of fire when I was like, trading the S&P and, and oil and, uh, and, uh, and the DAX actually for a little bit um, too. Uh, you find out, like you were saying, sort of that self-awareness side, you find out so much about yourself. And I found out very quickly that I was awful at trading fast-paced markets. So now I'm more mm. of a, a swing trader, very systematic approach, and that's what suits me. But if someone said, look, Sam, you're going to have to go trade uh, non-farm payrolls or the Fed meeting, I, I could guarantee I'd lose money. Um, but, you know, what when it comes to... See, that's a really good point, I think. Sorry, can I interrupt for one second? Yes, I think that's a good yes. point for the viewers to, to, to take in, is that when you're new... If you work at a bank or a fund, you tend to like listen to what the people are doing and then you kind of want to emulate that. Or if you're reading books, you kind of like think, oh, this person's an expert. I want like I'll, I'll do that. 
But what you should really be doing is starting with the baseline of like, who am I and what's my personality? And then taking bits and pieces from people that you learn from and incorporating them instead of trying to do what someone else is doing, like you're saying, because you, you, you'll never succeed doing that. If you're a very slow kind of like personality, slow energy, very thoughtful, intellectual, you shouldn't be day trading, you know, non-farm payrolls, like you said. Um, so I think understanding like how to incorporate and learn, but still also develop your own style at the same time is the path to success. Whereas I find a lot of people by default tend to emulate or, or like try to replicate. And I don't think that's, that's not a, a successful strategy, especially because really good traders adapt and change their yeah. style over time to, to recognize regime change in the market. So even if you're emulating like the best trader in the world, that person six months from now might be trading mean reversion because yeah. even though they were trading trend, when you started copying them, they've realized that like, okay, economic volatility is collapsing. I'm going to start trading mean reversion or whatever. So it's much better to develop your own style while like respecting people who are good and taking bits and pieces, but never trying to emulate them. Yeah, and no, I completely agree. Uh, quick one. What's more important, learning to win or learning to lose as a trader? Yeah, that's such a random question um, because I think it's actually the, the, for me anyways, I think that again, this is probably personality based, mm. but for me, it's, it's more learning how to win because I felt like throughout my whole career, when I'm down, I always trade well. So for me, like the essence of my trading style is tight aggressive, which again is like a poker thing. But it basically means when you have a good hand, you just be really aggressive and yeah. have the courage to bet big. And when you have bad hands fold, and when I'm trading well, that's what I'm doing. I'm just sitting here flat all the time. And then something really good comes along and, and I do it. And a day and a half later, I'm out. And then I'm sitting there waiting for the next thing. And when I'm trading badly, you know, it's like playing three, seven offsuit. You're just like, oh, there's a chart break. I'll buy some euros. And then, you know, as soon as it goes down, you don't believe in the trade because it was a, a lame hypothesis. So then as soon as it goes down, you sell and then it goes back up and you're like, oh, it's back above the trend line. So like th that kind of thing um, is bad trading for me. So for me, when I'm down, I trade tighter and I trade better. And then because I have like a bit of a gambling, you know, I like gambling and, and I like stimulation and all that kind of stuff. Like that's my bias. Mm. So my bias is to overtrade. So then when I'm up a lot, that usually my blowups have come from like a very high water, usually from high water is when, when I have a really bad run because like, say you, you work at a bank and your budget was $10 million and you're up 17 million and then you're feeling overconfident and you kind of have some money to burn. Like that's the house money effect yeah. in casinos where people who have a lot of black chips in their pocket trade or, or sorry, gamble really stupid. Um, yeah. And people who have like barely any chips gamble a lot tighter. Um, and there's a lot of experimental evidence that shows that, so I actually have conditional formatting in my in my PL spreadsheet where like I know kind of like what a good run rate is. And then if I'm way above that, um, it's my spreadsheet starts turning pink and then red. And so I reduce risk as I'm over only when I'm like it's kind of a continuum. So like if I'm doing well, I I take more risk because yeah. I feel like that's how you can get really exponential upside. Is like once you have gains, you're strong and you have kind of like you're in the strongest trading position. 
but then there's a point where that hits diminishing and then negative returns where you're overconfident and you're just like making it rain in the club because you got so much <laughs> PL. And then you usually give back a big chunk and then you're like, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. And then you go back to tight aggressive and trade well again. Um, and I mean, even my boss one time said to me, I had a huge loss one time at a bank. And he's like, the only time you ever learn is when you lose. You know, when you win, you, you think you're the you're a god of trading and you've done everything correctly. Whereas, you know, there's a lot of variance, right? So if if you're making money half of the days, like 50% of days and your win ratio is two to one, like you make twice as much on the up days as, as mm-hmm. you lose on the down days, that's going to be a really good, you're going to be an amazing trader, right? But you still might lose money five days in a row or make money five days in a row simply because if you flip a coin five times, it could come up heads five times. So I think generally when you're doing well, human nature is you ascribe the causality to your like godlike trading skills. <laughs> and when you're doing poorly, then you, you tend to be more introspective and self-aware. I mean, at least for me, that's the way it is. Yeah, no, I can absolutely see that. I mean, when, when it comes to you know yourself or other traders that you, you've worked with or been on the floor with, when it comes to winning trades, is it a case for you that it's one or two big ones that makes your year or are you after being consistently good but averaging half decent winners, small losses, or does it completely depend on the person, the edge, their style of trading? Yeah, I mean, it definitely depends on the person. So for my style, um, because I just tend to like when I'm doing well, bet big on high volatility moments like events and things mm-hmm. like that. So for me, like in good years, my PL looks like a stair step basically. Yeah. So kind of like doing nothing or maybe like bleeding in options a little bit. So my PL is going like that. And then the thing happens and I it goes up and then it kind of like will accrue a little bit or decay a little bit. And then the next trade comes along and it's and it goes up. So when I'm trading well, it's like a stair step thing. It would be way more than two steps though. Like I would never make money off of two trades in a year. It would be like 25 or like 15 to 25 really good days. And generally those days are going to be around like some kind of dislocation or event or whatever. Um, But that's just me. Like some people actually do that, like especially in macro, Mm -hmm. they'll just be like, okay, this is, you know, this is the thing I'm paid rates. And I mean, like when you see those uh, like headlines, like Rocco's up 88%, on the year or whatever that's generally what they're doing is they're making a few concentrated bets you know usually some of it in options and they're just saying okay well i'm risking like seven percent of the fund on this trade and here we go um that's not my style at all like i i feel like that style creates too much volatility where your risk of ruin is too high so like what i want is like exponential upside but not exponential downside, um, kind of like a call option. So if you do well, you can increase your risk as time goes on and make more and more money. And relative to your starting point, that looks exponential. But if you're doing poorly, then that thing should just look like a like like an option bleeding, right? You're losing a bit, losing a bit, losing a bit. Um, I would say in general, most traders have chunky PL. Um, unless you're a market maker or you're doing something very, very high frequency like scalping, mm. um, I think it's very hard to be wildly consistent. You know, it's just there's a lot of variance. Even if you're really good, there's just variance. Yeah, 
for sure. I mean, from your Oscar nomination introduction at the beginning, we, we've seen you've had a, a pretty mm. remarkable career. But let's now move on and use that for the best trading stories. I mean, there must be some out there. I mean, my old boss once told me he lost tens of thousands on a trade where he was having a a chicken sandwich, bit into it, a piece of chicken fell out and went onto his mouse, which clicked by some sort of European bond or whatever. Uh, but what what what, oh are, my God. what what stories stick out for you? The good, the bad, and the ugly. So I actually had one similar to that, but it was it only cost me about eight hundred dollars. Where I threw a mushroom at a guy um, <laughs> who I was working with across the thing, and it hit his like F four key and bought like five hundred shares of Apple or something. Um, I mean, the most fun story that I ever had was so it, I started it on Wall Street, and then when I started, it was very flow driven. So I found mm-hmm. it kind of like lacking a little bit in intellectually like intellectual stimulation wise you're just executing other people's trades so i I didn't love it so i left and i went to day trade the nasdaq bubble and there was a day when um, jds uniphase was being added to the s p 500 and so like i'm sure a lot of people on this know what level two looks like but you know the bids and the offers are going like this and the by definition the bid is always lower than the offer right like you can't otherwise there'd be an arbitrage yeah, yeah. so like if it's bid at 100 the closest offer would be 100 dollars and one cent mm-hmm. um but going into this s p rebalancing something went weird and basically instanet and um i can't remember the other one i think it was island instanet and island couldn't match each other for some reason so Instanet was 149 bid and Island was 148 offered, but it was at like three. So this, and these things were only running till four o'clock because that's when yeah. the rebalance was marked. So it was like 358 and 50 seconds or something. And I noticed it and I'm like, oh, that's weird. And so my F1 was sell a thousand and my F, I guess, 12 was buy a thousand. Yeah. So I went like, dun, dun. <laughs> and, I, and then I looked because it was too good to be true. So I was kind of hesitating and I looked my P&L went up a thousand dollars. So then I'm like, dun, 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 dun. and I'm like, oh, went up again. And then I looked at the thing and it was like 359.12. And I, I just screamed arbitrage. And I just started going like this. Whoops. Oh my God. I blew up. I caused an earthquake. Um, <laughs> I just started pressing the buttons. Like there's actually a video game called track and field from when I was a kid. And that's yeah, how you yeah, used yeah. to run. So I'm really good on the buttons. So I was going, and then like, finally the, the, it was four double O double O like 4 PM. Exactly. Market closes, the things all disappear. And then I looked at my P and L it was like $48,000. So I had done it like 44 more times. Um, and like, at you know, that was real money. It wasn't like you're getting a percentage that was real money. So like, and you know, I wasn't rich. So that was like in, absolutely the most insane for me, like relative to my, you know, I was whatever I was 26, 27 at that time. So that was like bonkers, bonkers amounts of money. And actually the icing on the cake at that time was I was trading in Canada and dollar CAD was at 150. So every dollar that you made essentially was like 150 Canadian. Um, and like my rent was 900 bucks at that time, <laughs> 900 Canada at that time. So yeah, you can, to give you an idea of what 48,000 us was, it, that was completely insane. Amazing. Um, and then, I mean, the other time, that was like, I mean, this isn't a specific trading story, but I think like a really powerful time for me was 2008 simply because like any thing that you've ever traded, like anyone that didn't trade 08, anything you've ever traded that the think of the craziest thing that you ever traded. Mm-hmm. 08 was like way more insane than that. And it was every single day for like eight months. 
So like if Ozzy N is normally moving like these days, you know, 70 pips, mm-hmm. a big day normally would be 300. It was sometimes moving like a thousand pips in a day. Um, like the options market was basically shut down. And I was working at Lehman Brothers at that time as well. So like that was double, double insanity. Um, So I actually have really good memories of that time because essentially what happened was like 80% of people were just like, this is insane. This is way too dangerous and risky. And like, I'm just going to like hide under the desk. And then 20% of people, which included me was like, this is the opportunity of a lifetime to see what kind of trader, how much money I can make kind of thing. So, um, you know, and because there was like opportunities every day, if you lost money one day, you could make twice as much the next day. So that was like an incredible period of trading. Um, and in a way I kind of learned from, from my experience in like 99, 2000, that like when there's a massive regime change, you gotta, you gotta recognize it and totally change how you trade Yeah, because like 99, 2000 would be like 2021. It was like mm-hmm. free money. If you knew what you were doing, there's headlines, you just traded it. And, you, you know, we almost made money every single day in 99 and 2000. But then in 01, decimalization came in and the market changed dramatically yeah. in many ways. And I didn't adapt. So then what ended up happening was like every day I was just losing a grand, losing two mm-hmm. grand because everything that I had, had done in 99 and 2000 pretty much instantly stopped working as I'm sure many of your viewers experience like 2020, 2021, yeah. you could buy zoom calls through earnings and make 10 X your money and all that. And obviously that didn't keep happening. Um, so w- a big lesson, which like I didn't learn until I eventually closed my account and went and got a real job um, trading again at a bank was that like when there's a significant regime change, you have to completely rethink what you're doing and so like in 08, I, I kind of could smell like, holy crap, this is totally different. And then I adjusted my position sizes and I kind of started like really mo- like monetizing every single day. Yeah. Whereas a lot of people like say they had their standard position size, they're still trading that. So they're just getting stopped out on every single move. Cause like, you know, vol was eight and now it's 50. You can't trade the same position sizes. And so, um, but because of my experience in 99, 2000 of, not recognizing the regime and losing most of my money. <laughs> um, I was like, okay, this is like the same thing again. Now, like the regime has changed. And actually 2021, I, I was able to recognize it too. Like the game has changed. And so you got to just trade completely differently. Um, so I guess that would be like a useful takeaway from, from all my experience is adapting to the regime is what's going to get you to be a good trader for like, not just for two years, but for 10, 15, 20 years um, because you can't just keep doing the same thing for 20 years. Like if something you're doing is working, then by definition, the market will probably slowly arbitrage, whatever that thing is out. Right. Because in general, the market, you know, there's not going to be any free money machine. So efficient markets will eventually squeeze out whatever's working. And then, so you got to kind of constantly be reinventing yourself. Yeah. And, and, and to have that sort of high performance as a trader, you've got to be consistent there's no point being a good trader for two years like you're saying if you're doing it as a career you've got to have that consistency um have you ever when was all i suppose have you ever been shocked the answer would be yes but when was the last time you were shocked by something in the market or is it a case now that nothing can shock you 
Uh, no, things still shock me. Not very often though, actually. I will say, like, I I remember one time during COVID, um, I worked at a bank at that time as a market maker. And I remember turning to the guy next to me and being saying to him, like, dude, I'm actually scared right now. Like, because I, I had such a big position and the market was moving so much. And I was like, I haven't really been scared in a long time because, you, you know, when you start, it's scary all the time. And, you know, your threshold to be scared goes up. Um, but the most surprising thing really um, is because COVID kind of came slowly at first. So you kind of had a chance to, like, adjust and realize, OK, this is like a crazy thing. Um, was in 2015 when the Swiss National Bank dropped yeah. the floor because like nothing like that had ever happened in my lifetime. I'm really never has happened other than 1992, like the ER, ERM crisis, which is like before my time I was in school at that time. So that whole thing was like just complete insanity. And I mean, I worked on the spot desk at Citibank at that time. So it was like the amount of pain and, and yeah. well, some joy, but mostly pain um, and the size of the moves, right? Like dollar, Euro Swiss went from 120 to 0.85, like 1.2 to 0.85. And like we were doing so many trades that like you barely knew your position and things are gapping like 6% at a time. So you, you know, you're looking at your P&L and it's just going click, 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 like up 6 million, down 1 million. Like, so I would say that was the last like real time. And especially, thankfully, like I just assumed that the floor would hold like the central bank a week mm -hmm. earlier had been saying like, we're uh, committed to selling unlimited Swiss francs to hold the floor or whatever. But my boss actually was saying it's horrible risk reward because if you're yeah, long, yeah. You, what are you going to make like a hundred points? But if, if they move, which they probably won't, but if they do, you know, you're screwed. And I actually was like, ah, I don't know. They're not going to move. It's a central bank. But I never took the position because my boss, I knew my boss yeah. would never forgive me if they did move the, the, the floor. And so I'm thankful that he had the foresight to know, like, even if it's a 0.0001% chance, it's just not worth it. And like, generally, that's kind of my philosophy on risk of ruin is like, if you can't quantify your risk, just don't do the trade. Like if you're, if, if you're going to be short Tesla through earnings, if you have some kind of way of backtesting and you know, okay, like very worst case scenario, it could go here and like, I'm going to double that and I still won't be dead if that happens. Okay, sure. Like, you you know, you don't always, you can't always be scared of every event either. Um, but I would say like anything that involves possible risk of ruin, like selling dollar Hong Kong mm. at the peg or like sometimes the IPO stabilization bid is there and then it's gone and the thing disappears or whatever, like those kind of nonlinear things. I'm just not a fan, like selling, selling options with unlimited downside, you know, is a good way the famous people blow up. Um, I feel like, again, because there's a lot of variance in the distribution, if you want to trade for 25 years, if you look over the abyss, like six or seven times in those 25 years, one of the times you're going to tumble in. So um, I think that's advice that I would give people too. is just avoid risk of ruin, no matter what, like even no matter how sexy the trade looks, it just, it's just not worth it. Yeah. I mean, I remember that January 15th, 2015, I, I actually, at the yeah. time I was going out with a girl and we broke up or she broke up with me on January the 14th. So obviously I went out and had a big night oh, out with all my mates, uh, you know, took me out on the town and then I woke up late. And me and my brother were trading at the time. And he goes, Sam, Sam, come here. It's all gone crazy. 
And then, yeah, uh, the Swiss uh, left the floor. Euro was dropping against the dollar. It was crazy. And I had this massive hangover. I I wish I was trading. I'd lose money, but I wish I was trading in it. Uh, (laughs) Remarkable. Uh, And I was a new trader then. So let's let's focus now on sort of advice for new traders. Um, Is it a one-size-fits-all approach when it comes to trading and, and advice for them? Or is it just so much more than that? No, I mean, I think the thing I kind of alluded to this earlier, so I won't go like too long on this topic, but I would say the most important thing for new traders is to understand risk management is number one, because people just spend way too much time thinking about trade selection and not enough time thinking about risk management. Um, So having a rigorous risk management process that you understand, and it probably involves a spreadsheet that spits out a position size I think if you don't have that, you're probably gambling and you also will never really know if you're a good trader because there's so much variance in that kind of style of of not having a firm risk management policy. And then the other thing I would say is that you need to be in a healthy environment with enough capital. And like that can mean wildly different things to different people. So I'm not going to put a number on it, but um, trading is so hard and like success rates are so low that you know if you open an account with three thousand dollars in it and just like to because you want to start trading you're probably going to end up gambling because that amount isn't big enough to move the needle for most people anyways depending on where you live um to move the needle financially so and then on the on the other side if you work at a bank and like the head of trading is super risk averse and is like constantly sending you emails saying like why do you have so much risk you're just not going to succeed. Like it's just way too hard. So I generally like when people ask me, you know, the people give me their like kind of like life situation and, you know, I'm doing this job and I have 20 grand in the bank or whatever. Generally, I would always say, put yourself in the strongest possible position because otherwise you just don't know. You'll never know if you're good or not because you didn't give yourself a fair chance. So, and the fundamental thing you need is, a healthy risk-taking environment with some runway. Same thing if you go to a hedge fund. If you have six months to prove that you're good, that's not going to work out because there's just too much path dependence and randomness around that. So I think being in a position where you have enough capital um, and you have support either from like if it's if you're retail, you have support from your wife or your family or whatever. Or if you're if it's institutional, then you have support for management. And if you're not in that, you got to find it or like figure it out because you'll never succeed. It's just success rates are low in trading. It's hard. Like it's like any professional thing where there's no barriers to entry, really hardly Um, like, you know, how many professional poker players succeed, how many authors sell best-selling books. It's like one of those kind of, I think the calculus is similar where you got to give yourself every chance to succeed or you just won't know. And then it just like, you know, you, you blame the environment, but it's really you that sets the environment. You have to choose the right environment. Yeah, for sure. What, what would you say is the, the importance of, of a mentor to trading and then also the sort of the key attributes to being a good trader? Yeah. I mean, mentorship is definitely helpful or even having peers to talk to is helpful. Mm. Um, I think that's why generally success rates at banks and institutions are so much higher than retail overall is that, um, I mean, maybe there's a selection bias as well because like people have to do certain hurdles, clear certain hurdles in yeah, order to yeah, get yeah. to a bank. But I think also you have peers and you have 
mentors that that can teach you. Um, and I know as a retail trader, it's very difficult to get a mentor because um, generally, like for me, when people ask me, I'm like, I already have people in my own organization that I'm mentoring. Yeah. So, and I don't have the bandwidth to mentor externally. And I think that's generally a thing. So I think this, the best substitute for that is a group of peers, like either like your trading group um, or pod or like online kind of, but I don't think online is as good. Mm -hmm. Like I would rather pay to sit, like if I'm trading retail, I'd rather pay to sit in a, in a place like a trading floor yeah. or like a day trading shop or whatever. Um, even if you have to pay, or even if you don't get, even if you only get a percent or whatever, I think your odds of succeeding in that environment are just like astronomically higher because there's a symbiosis and like a synergy kind of element of sitting in the environment. You hear everyone talking, there's yeah. ideas, you feel the energy of the place. I, I just feel like sitting in a room by yourself trading is just very, very difficult. Some people can do it. Mm -hmm. um, but I would say like, that's a very, very rare exception. And so, I mean, if you can do something in an organization or an institution, I think your odds of success are higher. And like, if you want to trade on your own, if you're really hell bent on that, um, then find peers somehow who you can like have even a zoom open with or whatever, where you have some kind of communication, because I think it's very difficult to just start trading retail and succeed right away. You just, there's too many things to learn. Yeah, I mean, I, when I used to trade on on a floor at a prop shop in 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 London, there'd be people from all over. Some that would trade spreads, some that would trade specifically stocks. Others, you know, Euro USD on the futures, and that was the only market they traded. But it's good to bounce ideas off each other and be there and talk market. I think when you are doing it solely on your own at home, it's lonely, and you know that's when you can get into a bit of a bit of a hole. Um, let's now and just to your point, actually. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. Um, to your point, I think a lot of stuff happens by osmosis. So like I worked at a hedge fund for a few years and the guy that sat next to me traded like, so I don't, I had never traded oil in my life. Yeah. He traded oil and he traded a lot of like calendar spreads and like esoteric stuff around oil. But then I trade a lot of Canadian dollar and CAD is actually pretty yeah, tightly yeah. correlated to oil. So as I started understanding like, oh, the NYMEX close is when like 50% of the volume goes through. So like when oil shoots up at one thirty, mm. or shoots up like a buck and a half at two thirty, maybe that's less meaningful because it's just like an order on the close. So you start learning about that kind of stuff. And then that made me a better trader of the Canadian dollar. So I think you pick up a lot of stuff by osmosis, even if the people are trading totally different stuff. Yeah, hundred percent. It's quite funny on, on our trading floor, there was this uh, trader who would get very, very excited when uh t notes or the bund would be like on a new high and he'd be like but new high but new high and people newer traders would jump in they get so excited and then i came back from doing doing a teaching session and i saw a piece of paper just like this and it said do not listen to and then it was this person's name because they were like whenever they did they'd always buy the top or sell the bottom and it turned out one of their best ever no, trades no, sorry, sorry sorry go ahead now I can say it turned out one of the, his, this person's best ever trades is when they actually faded the other person because they realized when he gets really excited, that's the top, the move's done. So there's a whole thing in my book about that called the cheer hedge. So in, when I worked at a bank, when I was first a manager, I had like quite a few young traders working for me 
And so we started noticing the guy that sat next to me and I started noticing whenever people would like say they were long dollars and they'd be like America. Yeah. After like a data point or whatever, I would, we started noticing like, Hmm, it doesn't work very well when people do that. It tends to be a bad, bad karma. So then what I started doing was actually when someone did that, I'd put the opposite position in my book in the management book and we call it the cheer hedge. So like I was hedging the fact that the guy cheered and the cheer hedge literally made money every single time. So I have a whole thing in my book about that. And there's a reason, right? It's like, that's a euphoric point in the market where pretty much anyone that has a position is feeling invincible and overconfident. And then when you're overconfident, you get punched in the mouth, right? Like that's how markets work. So um, it's an interesting observation because hundred percent that fits my experience. Yeah. Well, let's, let's just talk about the books then just to, to wrap up today as well. And we'll talk about Spectra too. So, obviously that's a an example where a lot of people will be able to take benefit from the book realizing that and i think people that use twitter will also know when we're near a top uh historically when people get really really excited but what can people first of all who's the book aimed at and and how could say a retail investor or trader you know take bits from that sure so my first book was called the art of currency trading and the point of that book was essentially the issue that I had when I was learning was you have in, in FX, you have a lot of like international finance books, which are very theoretical and not very useful, like talking about trade balance and stuff like that. And that was one end of the spectrum. And then the other end of the spectrum is like super charty things about breakout trading, um, which often were basically just bullshit in my opinion. (laughs) I don't know if I can say that on here. You can. Um, Yes, absolutely. I just said it. Uh, Okay. Okay. Um, and generally written by people with no market experience. And often those people were writing books about like, you know, selling sneakers on eBay and stuff like that. So there was kind of two extremes. And so what I wanted to do was write a book for practitioners, um, who actually trade FX every day. And I wanted to write something that like covers the basics so that people that are new will understand like, what's the FX market? How does it work? And all that. But then also something that, experienced people would find some benefit like my peers would still find it useful because i didn't want to write like a total newbie book so the way i try to do it is like start from here's how the market works and you know here's why fx goes up and down and this and that and then go into more like specific strategies that i use and tactics and stuff and then after that book um i kind of wanted to write a book that was just more about trading in general because when you're writing a book about FX, you know, there's a lot of stuff to cover about FX. So I couldn't make the book a thousand pages. So I didn't really talk about like psychology and risk management very much in the art of currency trading. And to me, like I said earlier, those are the really the most important topics. And I don't feel like there's a million good books about them. There's a lot of trading psychology books, Mm -hmm. but I don't think there's a lot of books that kind of incorporate like risk management and psychology. And then the interplay between those things, um, and why like bad psychology leads to bad risk management and, you know, the, the steps that happen in your head as you do the stupid things, even if you're smart, because that's kind of like a theme in my, in alpha trader is like smart people do stupid things still, you know, so that's what bias is all about. Um, so alpha trader is more broad audience, just like anybody that trades, um, whether it's crypto FX or whatever, I don't really focus on FX in alpha trader. It's more. The mindset, which is mm-hmm. like psychology, then the mathematics, which is risk management, and then a lot of like specific tactics and strategies that I use to like understand narrative and how I use technical analysis 
as a risk management tool and like specific ways that I trade. Um, but that would apply, like I trade a lot of futures when I was at the hedge mm-hmm. fund. So, um, and then I trade equities in 99 and then I trade FX mostly the rest of the time. So, um, alpha traders just for anyone that trades. Um, and I, I mean, again, I kind of wrote it for like people that like I respect would still like as traders, like who have been trading yeah. for 15 years would find it useful. But I also know that like, you know, the audience is, is mostly going to be people that are relatively new. So, mm-hmm. um, I, I tend to like make it understandable for, for anyone essentially. That's my writing style is more like, it's kind of conversational a little bit. Like, I guess you've read some of my stuff. Yeah. Um, so it's like what I'm trying to thread the needle is like expert level knowledge, but understandable is essentially like, that's my approach. So yeah the best approach i think uh, and and i'll put both the links for those that are listening on the podcast it will be in the bio section in youtube scroll down and you'll see the link to both of those books Let, let's talk about right now then to, to wrap us up you're the president of spectrum market sure. so how did that come about what do you guys do and how did your career really lead you to that sure so yeah so like i said most of my life i was a market maker at <laughs> banks um, but what happened over the years? So like you think I started in 1995 in 1995, all trading was basically flow. Nobody really took any directional risk. You were keeping track of your position on a piece of paper and then inputting the trades in the computer after like, that's how it kind of worked. And now most market making is automated. So like any trade under 20 million usually will go to like an automated hedging machine at a bank. Um, and so the humans, there's very few human trading jobs left in FX and the remaining humans, which I was one of them um, tended to be people that had views on the markets and that could communicate with uh, clients and, and, you know, help them with large execution when a client wanted to do like a billion dollar yen or whatever, and then give them advice on direction and, and that kind of thing. And so that evolution of the role started meaning that I was doing more and more communication and like writing a daily piece and talking to clients and so my value to the bank became more and more as like a, almost like a quasi sales thing where I was talking to clients more than I was like, I just had my positions and half the time I was off the desk talking to clients. Um, and so growing up, I always had the tension between like the math and the creativity. Um, in fact, in that time in 1999, 2000, I also wrote a cartoon that was on TV in Canada. So I've always been interested in like writing yeah. and trading at the same time. So as I've gotten older and then like the market making function becomes less enjoyable as you get older, like it's just more like a rote mechanical aspect. So I was losing interest in market making. And so, and more my like passion for writing has increased over the years. It's always been there, but like Mm -hmm. I I enjoy and I have a more, a bigger following. So I feel like there's more value in it. Um, so Spectra, what, what Spectra FX Solutions is the original company. And what they do is they talk to hedge funds and banks and give them ideas and trade mostly FX options. Mm-hmm. So we're like an agent for trading FX spot and FX options. So I talk to like all the hedge funds in the world and all the banks and give them ideas and they trade with me and happy days. But then there's a separate company that they created when I came here called Spectra Markets, which is more just like a a venue for me to create content and talk about what I'm doing. So I write about like trading and macro global macro and FX. Um, so I write a daily, which is called AMFX, which I've been writing since like 2004. 
Um, so I sell subscriptions to that uh, on spectramarkets.com. Um, and so it's kind of like this synergistic thing where like when I write, I send out my ideas, I get feedback. And then I think that makes my writing better. And it also makes my trading better because like, say I'm going short euros and I like hadn't looked at BTPs today and someone's like, dude, BTPs are down yeah. three points. Uh, or sorry, say I'm going long euros and someone says BTPs are down three points. I'm like, oh shoot, I didn't even notice that. Mm -hmm. Like that makes this trade horrible. Like, and then I'll get out. So like having a network and then writing and then trading, it kind of like has been a really good thing. Um, so I came here in uh, September, 2021. And it's kind of been for me the best of all worlds because I'm still like, you know, in the in the loop with Wall Street, but I can also kind of do my own thing and write. I, it gives me a lot more flexibility to write as well because there's working at a bank, there's like a very strict compliance regime. So you tend to self-censor and just be like really down the middle kind of thing. Whereas here I can joke around a bit more and um, say things that are a little bit more controversial or, you know, do do what I want. Fantastic. And I, I've said this to you before, but I'm going to tell everyone now listening that your Twitter account is in the absolute top bracket of, of people and accounts that I think people should follow. So that's uh, at Donnelly underscore Brent. You. And you didn't pay me to say that either. So uh, it comes from a no, I did not. true no, place. There's no paid relationship here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Final, final question. I, I saw a tweet you did yep. recently and it had a, a picture of, um, uh, I think it was someone from the NFL. And obviously that is the Super Bowl is happening this Sunday. So, and you like a little bit of a gamble. Have you, have you got a predict? So this will go out after the the Super Bowl. So you're going to be held, held accountable. Do you, do you have a view, the Chiefs or the Eagles? Well, you know what sucks is I had the Bengals um so honestly i've kind of i had like a decent amount of money on the bengals at eight to one and they mm -hmm. lost by three so now i'm kind of like because they were my team i was following them through the whole like through the season in the playoffs uh like I, not from because i'm from cincinnati yeah, yeah, just because yeah. i bet on them uh, i'm i'm gonna be honest and say like i kind of don't care like i'll watch the game and i, I like Mahomes, so yeah. i'll be cheering for kc but um i don't honestly i don't have a strong view on who's gonna win yeah, yeah, I'm with you. I like Mahomes, so he'll be my choice. I actually saw today an interesting uh, tweet that was saying, please don't stop the music by Rihanna is favorite to be the halftime uh, show first song. And you can actually bet on that, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, ah, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah, that's probably a good, uh, like, banger to start the start the music. Yeah. Absolutely. Brent, thank you very, very much for, for coming on. I'm sure our audience will have found it incredibly interesting, as I did as well. So thank you very much. Welcome. All right. Thanks for having me. You have been listening to Digest and Invest by eToro. For more information, use eToro.com.